Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. What seems like forever ago, when I was an energy analyst just starting out, I used to hear the term energy security all the time. Maybe it was because I was based in Washington, D.C., but I'd hear policymakers use it constantly to push for an all-of-the-above energy approach, so the U.S. would be less reliant on other nations for its energy, particularly oil. But around 2009, that term really peaked when shale oil and hydraulic fracturing came into play. It changed the game, taking the U.S. from importer to net exporter of oil and gas, and the impacts of shale oil reach across all sectors and across the globe. Today on the show, we've got Tai Liu, and Anna Dialinus, U.S. oil analyst for BNF. They're going to tell us about the state of U.S. shale oil, how oil demand rising to pre-pandemic levels is impacting prices, and how oil producers are dealing with all of it. Our discussion is based on a report titled U.S. Shale Oil Quarterly Outlook 3Q 2021. BNF users can get this report on BNF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal, BNF.com, and Bloomberg Mobile. As a reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF podcast. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. So we've brought you in to talk about U.S. shale oil today. Anna, can you start us off and tell us a bit why we're talking about U.S. shale? So U.S. shale oil is a really interesting part of the global supply picture for oil. And if you think about it, it's quite different from a lot of the rest of the oil production that we have in the market, especially for people who don't usually think about oil too much. You usually probably picture things like the Beverly Hillbillies when you're envisioning oil production. I think my generation, we tend to think about Armageddon, you know, when they're on the offshore rig and Harry Stamper hits the uh, <laughs> the gusher and all the oil comes out the top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, same same idea, right? You kind of have this hole that you've drilled, all the oil flows out just very easily. That's oil production. Shale's quite different. Shale oil is a fairly newer technology that has come onto the market. It was developed actually, you know, sort of by the US government and stuff funded by them for decades, but it really came onto the scene around early 2000s. And in this, you extract oil from solid rock, from shale rock. It's a tight oil supply. And in order to do this, you have to use technologies like hydraulic fracturing and injection of fluids to help open some of these pores that hold oil molecules and allow it to flow to the surface. So it has a very different production profile than a conventional well. But the benefit is it actually takes much less time to get the well to production and the wells don't last nearly as long as conventional wells, which actually makes them quite responsive. Anyways, shale is something that was developed, as I mentioned, in the early 2000s in the US and really started booming because there's actually a lot of opportunity for shale in across the US. 
And so starting around 2008 or so, we saw production coming online. And then we just, over the past few decades, have seen phenomenal growth in this sector. I mean, especially you look back just a few years ago, 2017, 2018, U.S. production was growing about 26% from U.S. shale basins on an annual basis. Production grew to the point where U.S. was the largest producer of oil due to the shale production that was coming out. So it's been a really important feature of the U.S. supply story. However, the problem is that as the U.S. was just flooding the market with all of the shale oil, there was also competition with OPEC for who can sort of supply into this market where demand is pretty stagnant. And as a result, prices were tanking. We've had very low oil prices over the past few years. And this meant that actually the profitability for a lot of these companies was looking worse and worse. They were putting, uh, borrowing a lot of money to invest in new production, and yet they were receiving pretty low prices for that production, and therefore they were seeing negative cash flow, not good returns for shareholders. So all of this was kind of happening in the background of the U.S. shale industry. And this was all going on, this discussion of, do they need to be profitable? Do you grow production? How do you balance those two? And then COVID hit, which completely destroyed all demand. Oh, man. What a roller coaster. I mean, (laughs) kind of halfway through what you're saying there is thinking like, when I started in the energy industry, I guess, like in, in renewables, really, we kept hearing, you know, we have to do all this for energy security, you know, U.S. energy security and all that. But with shale, it kind of, it seemed to kind of end. I didn't, I don't heard much about that in years, but I guess then it became a different problem, right? Of profitability and keeping the flow going or keeping the oil coming. Yeah. So shale was great for security in the sense that the U.S. became sort of a, an exporter of oil. We're the, we were the largest producer, but you know, the question was, what's the cost of all of that? And is it sustainable? Right. So Ty, can you tell us about what did happen during COVID? I think the first thing was that um, it's interesting that um, right before COVID, Russia and OPEC was actually having a price war. They had it for about a week or two and then COVID hit. So it was like a double whammy for the for the oil markets. You know, first you have the price war, right, with Russia and OPEC and they drove prices down. And then right like two weeks after, one or two weeks after that, COVID hit and prices just crumbled. I mean, um, right after COVID um, struck the world, I guess, OPEC and Russia went into the truce immediately, but demand took a big hit. And so did all prices. I think um, all prices at WTI at one point, at some point was like trading at negative prices, but that was because they were running out of storage. They have basically no, nowhere to put the oil in Oklahoma. So the demand took a huge hit and all these producers, because it's kind of like for, Supply to catch up with demand, there's usually a lag on the way up or on the way down. And you really need like all prices to go down to where, to a very low level before these producers are willing to like start shutting off the wells. But that was what we saw, you know, and, and producers had to like, we were forced to shut in a lot of the production um, during the trial, during the bottom of the pandemic, when, when, the, when demand fell out the bottom. And now they're starting to turn it back on. Uh, well, I, I should say by the third quarter or fourth quarter of Last year, they started turning on wells, uh, the all wells back on when demand slowly uh, recovered. And so that was what happened in the physical market. On the financial side, for like on the companies, from the investing side, what really changed in the past year is that um, the industry has really changed from like a, a growth industry, to, uh, as Anna just mentioned, to a really uh, for industry that's focused on returns and cash flow. For those who might not know, WTI is West Texas Intermediate. It's an oil price benchmark. Okay, so... 
tie. So it's changed for the financial markets. So what do you mean by that? Well, I, I guess um, as Andrew said before, the U.S. share production was growing at a very fast clip in the past. But that's all pretty much funded by debt. Uh, our companies took on a lot of debt to fund this production growth. Nowadays, a lot of investors, um, they want these companies to deleverage because they're seeing too much financial risk. And they want these companies to start paying back the shareholders faster. Other in, in the in ways of like higher dividend payout or in share repurchases. So the industry has really transformed in the past year. So it sounds like they went from kind of a, a bonanza of production, you know, where everything was just going great to a much, much tighter market with much more scrutiny over returns. And how is this change in the U.S. oil industry, I guess the, the shale industry at large, but also the recent changes, how has that impacted the global oil market? Yeah, so um, the U.S., the first thing is that the U.S. lost about 2 million barrels a day of production during the pandemic. We were producing about 13 million barrels per day of oil. Now we're only doing 11 million barrels. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the world oil demand growth was pretty much met by U.S. oil supply or production growth. Now we lost, we pretty much lost that engine. So when and when all demand returns, US oil production is not going to be there to meet demand. Oh wow. Okay, so demand tanked during COVID, right? And that's what caused all that that those challenges last year with oversupply. They turned off the wells, but now demand is starting to pick back up. Is that right? And then you're saying that the supply won't be there when the demand comes back. There's going to be uh, some difficulties of securing supply if we assume the growth rate that we had before. I think still, we still have like um, spare capacity from OPEC to meet demand growth uh, when we turn, uh, demand recovers. But when it starts growing again, we're going to have to figure out where those are, you know, how, how we're going to meet those new demand. And Mark, maybe one interesting thing to note about shale is that, as I mentioned, shale wells are different than most other conventional wells in that the production, because it's you're pulling it out of this tight rock, you get a lot of production in the first few months, but then it actually declines quite significantly over the next year or two. So you lose about 70% of your well's output in the first few years. So that's why in the U.S. shale patch, producers need to constantly be injecting capital into their operations in order to do drill new wells to offset the declines of old wells. So in order to keep production flat, you need to constantly be drilling new wells anyway. In order to grow production, you need to drill even more wells. Wow, so you just got to keep going. Yeah, exactly. So that's where, because there was so little investment in new production during COVID, a lot of those wells saw massive declines. That's why a lot of the output from the region has fallen off. And now, as Ty mentioned, U.S. producers are just very reluctant to invest significant amounts of capital such that that output will grow and sort of replace the lost barrels on the U.S. side. Do you think it'll come back? Do you think they will meet the demand in time or do you think the oil will have to come from somewhere else? I mean, you say the IEA is already expecting oil demand will return to 2019 levels, but sometime in 2022, right? So next year. Yeah, I, I think um, it's going to have to come from like several places, not just from U.S. Shell. OPEC will probably have to draw down their spare capacity compared to what, what they did before. Some of the national oil companies will probably have to pick up the slack. Um, some of those um, private companies, which are not so much under the financial uh, microscope, they're not so much under the scrutiny of the investing community. They, are, they probably have a lot more leeway to grow production compared to public companies. And uh, we might even need some of those Iranian railroads, Mark. 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so they might turn coming back from, from everywhere. What will be the impact of this possible demand on price? So will the price definitely go up or is there a scenario where we might see a price dip? I think chances are we'll probably see like the market continue to tighten, especially if you continue to draw down OPEC spare capacity. Historically, there's uh, some correlation between price and OPEC uh, spare capacity, well, a negative correlation. And so I think um, there's definitely more upside risk to prices than downside risk. In terms of downside risk, I mean, you really have to have these vaccine rollout programs to hit a big bump. And, and, you know, maybe some of these countries starts going back in terms of infection rates and they have to shut down um, parts of the economy again. I think that's probably the biggest risk as far as I can see. Okay, so if vaccine progress kind of stalls and then demand goes back down, then you'll see the price follow. Right. Yeah, the only other one would probably be if OPEC just didn't time their production correctly, right? Like, as Ty mentioned, they have a lot of spare capacity that they're slowly bringing online as they see demand ramping up. But if they mistime that, they could end up you know, oversupplying the market when demand is still in still flux. Is there a history of that? Is that does that happen? I, I'm as an outsider, I have just no idea. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think before this pandemic, OPEC member has like a history of like cheating their quotas. Um, so they always had, had produced like a little bit more than what they said they would. But this time around, surprisingly, the OPEC as a whole has been surprisingly disciplined about the production. And I think especially Saudi Arabia, I mean, they unilaterally took like a million barrels of their own production offline earlier this year just to keep the market in balance. So this time around, they are very disciplined. But as, we, as prices get higher and higher, you know, the temptations to cheat on your quota gets <laughs> yeah. higher and higher as well. So Yeah. Jeez. Okay. So needless to say, we're in for a, for an exciting year in oil, global oil, regardless. One more question about, about price. So I, I want to quote you. So in your report, you say the following, you say, although this price range is well above what the vast majority of U.S. oil plays need to achieve for profitability, we're doubtful U.S. oil companies will turn on the production spigots yet. So my question is, even if the, the wells become profitable at a certain price, you're saying that oil companies will not yet turn on production. So why is that? I don't quite get it. So I think um, if you look at break-even point of view, the vast majority of U.S. shell plates are in the money at these oil prices. But they are really resisting putting more capital into the ground to bring more supplies online because they're very busy paying down the debt. All this, uh, uh, as Andrew mentioned, they, are, uh, they took on a lot of debt during the boom years to fuel the growth. So now... Um, like all bubbles when it bursts, you know, they, they, you just have to work off the excess um, leverage. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, a, lot of investing uh, a lot of investors are demanding faster payback for the investments in all companies. So even after these companies work off the debt, they will be under pressure to increase like dividend and share buybacks. Okay. So effectively, they're kind of on a diet in a way. <laughs> so broadly speaking, what can we expect from the industry going forward for the rest of the year and actually post 2021? Anything different than we've already mentioned already? So I think going forward, because the US is no longer a big growth engine of production, oil prices rallies will be a lot more sustainable going forward. Because if you look in the past, in the past like 10 years or so, there were more than several occasions when the growth of US oil production has like derailed price rallies and end up that OPEC had to like cut back the production to make room for for U.S. oil growth, but without that, oil prices are probably oil price rallies are probably much more sustainable 
than in the past. Yeah, and the other thing on on the U.S. supply side, just as Ty mentioned, producers really are, even with the prices where they are at the moment, producers are sticking to the story of capital discipline, maintaining flat production, putting any increased revenue towards debt reduction and shareholder payout. When they think past 2021 into 2022, some of them are starting to talk about slow production growth. So growth of maybe 3% or 5%, nowhere near the double digit growth rates that we saw before. At the moment, it seems like the investor community seems okay with that. We didn't see any major stock price movements when they made those announcements on their earnings calls. So it looks like if demand does recover and things are going well into next year, we might see a bit of growth out of the U.S. shale patch, but nothing like it was before. And they do seem to be watching what OPEC's doing and sort of deferring to being more reactive to OPEC rather than, as Ty mentioned before, when they were sort of ready to compete for market share. Okay. Okay. So a little bit less ambition, more, what do you call it? Fiscal discipline, much better term than I used, a diet. <laughs> yeah. But moderate growth coming. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about what the players are doing, who they are, and the next areas of research for the U.S. oil team. Stay with us. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So in the report, I noticed something that, that we were talking about before we hit record was that a lot of the players that you mentioned in this report, I've never heard of. So shale production comes mostly from a handful of areas in the U.S. or basins, and the players are mostly independents. Is that right? Or are they listed or are they just you know, companies we know, we just are not familiar with. Can you describe that a bit? In the U.S. oil patch, a lot of these shale players are, are what we call U.S. independent oil companies. So they're not like the ExxonMobil or Shell or BP majors, the oil majors that most people are familiar with. They have like more names like EOG Resources, Devon Energy, Diamondback Energy, just companies that people will only be familiar with if you're in the industry. And I think there's like a, some history to that because Shell historically has not been big enough of an impact for the oil majors. So a lot of these oil majors didn't invest in Shell until like the later years. So that's why we have a lot of like the smaller independent companies took over in the early days. And some of them actually produce sizable quantities of oil actually at these points in time, like EOG and Occidental. They're, they're pretty big publicly traded companies for what they produce. But yeah, um, there's a ton of those medium-sized guys and a ton of consolidation in the industry, actually. So you'll constantly hear of mergers and acquisitions in this space. Are they particularly active? Like, I think they're in your report, you mentioned there are five main shale basins. Do they like have home home turf or, you know, this, do they are more active in one versus another? How does that work? There's like two models. One is that definitely they're more focused in one region so they can leverage all the expertise and know-how and supply chains in that one basin. And then there are like a couple of 
companies are spread out so they can um, diversify their risks so they're spread out in the, the various regions. Can we talk about the basins for a second? Is there a basin that really stands out as being a top performer? Definitely the Permian, if you talk about um, size and performance. Um, the Permian is probably is producing about 4.6 million barrels per day right now. And it's significant if you consider the U.S. is only is producing about 11 million barrels per day. So almost half of the U.S. output is coming from that one basin in the Permian. And for those of you who aren't familiar with oil basins in the U.S. geography sector, it's sort of in western Texas in the sort of southeast corner of New Mexico. That's where the Permian sits. And how are these places different from each other? They're all shale, but are they different geologically or anything like that? I think on a very high level, shale geologically are pretty much the same. They have the same um, characteristics. Uh, but the quality of the rock definitely could be very different from not only from basin to basin, but even from county to county. And the other question is the maturity of these plates. Some of these plates, um, like in the Eagle Foot, which is in South Texas, they've been very drilled out. They've been around for a long time. And the productivity for these wells are just not as good as they were before. So that's definitely like an age and quality aspect, as well as other characteristics too, like infrastructure availability and so on and so forth. Is there anything that you want readers or listeners to know about any of the you know, the outlook for any of these basins besides, you know, Eagleford is is drawing down. Is there anything else that stands out? In our report, in our research, uh, we think that U.S. oil production, shale oil production will pretty much be flattish for the next 18 months. It will probably grow by only 160,000 barrels per day, which now in, the, in December 2022. And all of that growth will be coming from the Permian. The other basins will probably be like out of flat or slightly lower. Yeah, so if the Permian ever stops growing for whatever reason, the growth trajectory is not going to be exist in existence. So either from the report or not, what are some of the major takeaways from your recent research? So like, what are you seeing in the market and what are U.S. oil producers saying? I think uh, there are definitely a couple of big takeaways. The first one is that higher oil prices, unlike in, in the past, it's not going to translate into um, more oil production, at least in the U.S. Companies, the producers are really busy paying down the debt and returning capital to shareholders. They are very reluctant to invest capital, more capital into the ground to increase production. So even if high commodities prices stays around for a while, production is not going to increase. That's the first one. I think the second one would be like as a corollary of that is that OPEC is back in control of all supplies. Historically, like Anna mentioned, that OPEC has made had to make make room for U.S. production growth. Now that's no longer the case. OPEC is firmly back in control. But definitely, all prices ready is going to be much more sustainable than in the past without the um, the growth engine in the U.S. And taking it to our clients, the listeners might know or not know that one of the things that we do is we talk to to clients quite a bit, people that are reading the research, using the tools, using the data. Are they asking anything particularly lately? Any common themes of what you're hearing from them or what are some of the debates out in the market right now? I think there are like two big questions from, from, from our, our clients. The first one is that, you know, um, at these high oil price levels, are U.S. producers going to increase the production or not? And I think it's at least for 2021, they will not increase production in any meaningful way. Now, beyond 2021, um, and I mentioned that, you know, producers probably comfortable increasing the production by like a very slow single digit, three to five percent. So um, if you're looking at like U.S. oil production at 11 million barrels per day right now, three to five percent is probably about 300, 550,000 barrels per day of increase on an annual basis. 
So very far away from what we've seen before, about one, one and a half million barrels per day of increase every year, right before the uh, pandemic hit. Um, the second question is, I guess it's more philosophical, um, is that um, will, will these U.S. oil producers change the tune? And, you know, are they going to ever going to increase production? And, and I think the answer to that is uh, this isn't, does not 100% lies with producers. It probably lies more with the investors. So if investors' attitude change and they're like, hey, you know what? If you guys, it, I think it's okay if um, all companies start producing, growing the production a bit faster than 5%. If, if they allow that without, you know, selling off the stock whenever these new uh, these oil producers say they're going to increase production, I think, you know, we, we could see more product, faster production growth from U.S. oil producers further down the line. The two things that come to mind on my side, I mean, as Ty mentioned, one of the big ones is what would it take for U.S. production to come up back online? And that would really just be a change in strategy amongst the producers themselves and the investors who back them. Uh, if there is appetite for shale growth, it's there if you come back fairly quickly, but it would require the capital to shift towards that end. The other question I think that is hounding the industry at the moment is, what should the focus be, right? We talked about this trade-off between focusing on production growth and focusing on capital returns. But then there's this other question of like, where does sustainability fit into this puzzle too? You have some of the majors, especially across Europe, looking to transition towards zero carbon diversify away from oil and gas. At the moment, most of the US producers, especially these smaller independent ones, are really focused on production. And then the question is, do you produce a lot and put all your capital into increasing supply or do you keep production flat and just generate returns? You know, the third option would be, do you take that capital and transition it to some other energy source or some other type of growth for the company? And I think that's a question that especially some of the bigger, you know, more financially sound of these companies are starting to think a bit about or starting to see pressure on. And you can see this obviously at the highest levels with Exxon having the um, activist investor pressure now to change up their board and change up how they're thinking about things. But some of the bigger independents like Occidental, Pioneer are also starting to talk a lot about what their emissions are, um, what their plans are for sort of the longer term, lower carbon future. And they've made investment in, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, exactly that. They've made investments in things like uh, carbon capture They're doing things like emissions tracking, which makes sense. You have Biden newly elected and a new focus on emissions. Um, And then you have sort of the demand picture that you can't escape too, right? We just published the electric vehicle outlook for BNF, and it's showing an even faster adoption of electric vehicles globally than we'd anticipated before. So it looks like sort of peak, peak oil demand is going to start edging even closer. And so especially when the outlook for oil is looking more and more tenuous. The question comes, if you are doing this long-term strategy of financial returns, do you just ride out the oil wave? Is it decline slowly or do you try and actually actively pursue other industries? Okay. These aren't just little debates. These are existential questions. This is is pretty (laughs) heavy stuff. (laughs) And I think in the electric vehicle outlook that just came out, they said they can pretty confidently call peak new automobile or new internal combustion engine vehicle sales, uh, what, four years ago, I believe. So if that's a, you know, indicator of what's to come for oil, I mean, yeah, wow, okay. 
existential indeed. Yeah, and there are some oil demand sectors certainly still growing. I mean, aviation, we anticipate aviation demand will grow. We anticipate petrochemical demand will grow. But it does point to the fact that, you know, you have to pick and choose your battles at this point, too. So what's next in your line of research? So what are you looking at? Are you trying to answer these debates or go somewhere else, new direction? What are you looking at? One of um, our next um, research on our plate right now is um, looking at gas production in the U.S. Um, since we built out like uh, most of the models for um, for U.S. oil production already, and gas production is pretty much follows like a similar track in terms of like our modeling and forecasting. So we are working on that right now. Yeah, and then on the bigger picture discussions, a note that I think is going to be really interesting is some of our colleagues covering oil demand out of Asia are looking into divestment. So sort of on that same note of oil companies deciding how much exposure to have to the upstream oil and gas space. A lot of the majors, especially the international oil companies, are starting to diversify away and divest out of maybe their most heavily polluting assets or their most expensive assets. So if they sell off major assets, be it acreage in Alaska or offshore or whatever, that can not only reduce their exposure to oil and gas, but also take a huge chunk of emissions off their books. And put it on someone else's, right? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So that's the question, though, is who's buying it? Um, a lot of these seem to be private producers purchasing them or some national oil companies purchasing them where the transparency around emissions is a lot murkier. And so uh, that's something I think we'll be diving into in a bit more depth is what's happening around this divestment, what assets are being divested, who's divesting them, and who's buying them. Well, these all sound like upcoming shows for <laughs> that we'll have to have you back for. Ty, Anna, thanks for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Mark. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording that expressly disclaims. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.